I was about to say I'm really excited for ethics, but it's true. I am I'm excited for ethics. It doesn't really sound exciting when you say it like that. Um, you know, when, you, when you're uh, uh, in one of the professions like the practice of law, you have to get your ethics credits every year. Someone suggested after Watergate that maybe we should train lawyers in ethics. And so we're required to take ethics sessions every year and in addition to our other continuing education. And um, once that was put into place, there were no more ethical violations. <laughs> you know, I do make a joke and I do think that, that, there, that there's something to that. Our, um, our chair, who I'll introduce in a minute, wrote an article about how ethics really, in the, in the current first issue of Addiction Leader, really need to come from some place of decent behavior. At the end of the day, uh, I think that human beings who work in a profession have a sense of right and wrong. And for many people, that guides us through any difficulty. They just have, a, they're good people. They have a sense of right and wrong and they do the right thing. But as we know uh, from, from our work, that's not true for everyone and it's not, that simple. There are complexities, and so we do need to dig deeper. We do need to look at ethics as an academic area, and that's what we're going to do um, here with the rest of the morning. So, uh, welcome back. My name is Marvin Ventrell. I'm the director at NAATP, and, and among the things I do is sit on the NAATP Ethics Committee, which has grown in, in activity over the last few years. Um, it's, it's not been something that we're, we were unaware of. We, as the field has grown, as, as um, money comes into the field, uh, we've seen an increase in the need for ethical guidance. And when we think about the NAATP being a voice of, of leadership, this is an area where, where that's clearly needed. Um, a field like ours that has people's hands in our has people's lives in our hands has to govern itself and take care of itself really well. We come here this morning to tell you what we're doing at NAATP, why we're doing it, and, and to get your feedback on on what you think. So the first part of this session, first 40 minutes or so, will be a presentation by the NAATP Ethics Committee, followed by a presentation, no break in between, we'll just switch seats real fast, followed by a presentation of two of our members on what they're doing in the field um, regarding these principles. So um, let's begin with uh, uh, some introduction, real brief introductions. I, I will just tell you that to my immediate right is Mr. Art Vandeveer. He is the Executive Director of La Hacienda Treatment Center in Hunt, Texas, and he is the chair of this committee. Welcome, Art. Robert Bobby Ferguson is the previous chair and now uh, sits as one of the members of the committee. Um, he is the founder and CEO of Jay Walker Lodge in Carbondale, Aspen area, Colorado. Welcome, Bobby. And Richard Rick Pine is a new addition to the committee and to our board of directors. And um, he is the CEO of Livengren Foundation in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Rick. 
Another member of our committee that works uh, on these issues uh, is Debbie Sanford, CEO of Pine Grove. She's not presenting this morning, but Debbie's a valuable member of, of this group as well. I don't know if Debbie, oh, there she is. Um, tell us how we do. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to take a few minutes and talk about what we have done and why we have done it and what these ethics look like. And then we will have some presentations, and then we'll a answer your questions. So um, let's begin at the beginning with the concept of ethical conduct or good behavior. Um, uh, there is a hierarchy of conduct when one works in a profession. Right? There's a way of behaving that meets certain standards and doesn't meet certain standards. If you think about it in terms of four tiers, the professions have always attempted and to a large extent adhered to this, to this hierarchy. The highest level of conduct is professionalism. Right? These are high principles, characteristics of individuals practicing in a profession of advanced learning. Right? This is our goal. This is our aspiration, to conduct ourselves as professionals. The traditional professions are law, medicine, and theology. What those three traditional professions have in common is they take care of people who, um, if not well taken care of, can be harmed. You have the power to harm. You have the power to do good, and you have the power to harm, and it requires special education and training in order to do this. It is, in, in many people, in my view, a sacred responsibility to do that kind of work. And if you do that kind of work, you have the responsibility to act professionally. And if you don't act professionally, um, your, your peers come and get you and throw you in the ocean. No, I mean, the, you know, if you don't act professionally, well, um, you probably are not loved, you're probably not liked, you're probably not respected, but you're allowed to continue to do your work. And we know who you are. You know, when I was uh, trained in the practice of law, it became clear to me very early on that if I demonstrate these behaviors, I'll be given the benefit of the doubt by my peers, by my judges, um, and if I need something, I'll probably get that, and I'll work better. I'll do a better job for my clients. That's what we want. We want our reputation to be uh, that of a high-level professional who is respected by others. It's a great aspiration that everyone doesn't achieve. Below that are what we think of as guidelines. Right? Guidelines are rules um, or suggestions issued within a professional structure that say you ought to act this way. You ought to do these things. It's not a requirement, but we write them down. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean, the very first one, Johnny Depp, he's going to violate a pirate principle. Somebody says, uh, isn't that a breach of like the, the pirate code? He says, no, they're just guidelines, really. <laughs> um, that's, that's the concept. Thank you. I've told that joke three times that I wasn't going to quit if I didn't get a laugh this time. <laughs> um, so that's guidelines. Next are ethical standards. These are standards to which you must adhere in order to continue to do the work in the community in which you do it, right? So if you belong to the bar, if you belong to uh, the American Medical Association, if you are an accountant uh, and, you, and you have CPA uh, and association rules and they have ethical standards of practice to which you must abide and you don't abide by them, there's a punishment within that society for that, right? Um, and then on the bottom, the minimal acceptable behavior of a human being uh, conducting their work is to follow the law, 
And the penalty for not following the law, of course, is a legal punishment. It could involve a fine. It could involve um, jail time. So if you think about our profession and what's going on, NAATP thought about what was needed, and we landed on ethical principles. Let's look at those. These ethical principles come from someplace, right? You don't just write a, a set of ethical rules. They, they, they are based on values. These are the core values of NAATP that inform our code of ethics. Um, these are the things that we value, that we believe. We value the history of significant contributions made by 12-step abstinence-based treatment. We value residential treatment's vital, necessary, and essential place in the full continuum of care. We value a comprehensive model of care that addresses medical, biopsychosocial, and spiritual needs. We value research-driven, evidence-based treatment interventions that integrate the sciences of medicine, therapy, and spirituality. We value abstinence from all abusable drugs as an optimal component of wellness and lifelong recovery. I really wanted to just stand up and say that one during the last session. We value outcome data that assesses efficacy. We value education and training that promotes understanding of a continuum of care that embraces these values. So these are the core principles by which we then turn to the creation of ethical standards. NAATP produced a set of standards um, uh, through the hard work of many people and the leadership of, of Bobby Ferguson in particular several years ago and promulgated them to the world and said, we, th we think this stuff. This is what we think. This is what we believe people should do, right? We actually believe it and, you know, we want you to believe it too. Um, and I think that's useful, right? It would be negligent for a society such, of our, such as ours to not say here are the principles by which we think you should, you should function. And so we did that. And we did it for the reasons that professions do these things. If we don't abide by these things, people get hurt. We have people's lives in our hands. Um, and we were nudged to do it uh, more aggressively by the fact that we're looking around and seeing ethical violations all over the place, right? Um, and so um, we felt the obligation to produce these, these standards. They are on our website. They are detailed. Um, you can easily access them. The public can easily access them. I commend them to you to, to read, print, however you, you sort of manage your paperwork. Please take a look at them in, in detail. And if you think that they are lacking, tell me about that. If you think they're good, I, I'd like to hear that too. And um, if you think they need some tweaking, you know, we can talk about that. So um, I'm not going to go through each and every ethics standard by any stretch. Uh, um, it's the last day as it is. But I do want to read you our preamble that sets the tone for what comes um, after that. This is the preamble mostly to the NAATP Code of Ethics. Just as personal responsibility and accountability are underscored in treatment for the recovery process, we're going to walk the talk that we give to our clients. Uh, NAATP treatment providers shall assume such responsibility and accountability in their provision of treatment services, in, the manage, in their management practices, uh, in their staff relations, in their relation with, relations with other public, I'm um, sorry, I'm having a little trouble reading, publics, 
I think that might be a typo with other public and in their market in their marketing. Further, NAATP provider members, organizations, individual members, and associate members will engage and do business only with other like-minded partners and organizations who themselves also abide by these basic ethical practices and standards. To help assure such responsibility and accountability, the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers has this code of ethics. This code of generally accepted ethical practices is seen as a dynamic statement that has the acceptance of each member and each associate member upon joining the association. Since those words were written, the membership structure has changed just, just a bit and we'll get those reconciled. We have two categories of membership now um, and they are provider and supporter. And all of you, when you become provider members, and supporter members pledge to follow these ethical standards in order to main, in order to remain a member of this society, right? So I can say to the world when someone asks me from the New York Times, and they do, uh, what is it that your members agree to do in order to be a part of your society? I can say they agree to abide by thoughtful, extensive ethical standards in order to remain a member. That's an agreement that you that we all make together. You know, I, I said it as if we're an authority and you make it in order to get to be a member. I should say it very differently than that. I should say we as a society have agreed that this is what we're going to do in order to stay together. We're going to stand for something. We're going to stand for these principles. The code is then uh, divided into ethical standards in four areas. Treatment, management, facilities, and marketing. So in each of these areas, you can go into our uh, ethics standards and say, what are the provisions to which I must abide relative to the delivery of treatment, relative to managing my association, relative to running my facility, and relative to marketing my program. And the one we're going to take a quick look at is marketing, in part. These, this is a piece of the marketing ethics standards. Under the category of financial rewards for patient referrals, we have a standard. No financial rewards or substantive gifts are offered for patient referrals. That's a rule. That's a standard. That's something that we as a society agree upon in order to remain in this society. Another piece, deceptive advertising or marketing practices. Treatment providers will not engage in deceptive or misleading advertising or marketing practices. Well, the devil's in the details there, isn't it? Well, what's a deceptive and, and uh, misleading advertisement? This is just aggressive business behavior. Guy's got to make a living. So that's where it gets tricky. NATAP members, pardon me, NAATP members and member organizations will not utilize any form of false or misleading advertising, will not engage in patient brokering, in quotes. What exactly does that mean? How do we define patient brokering? This is difficult, right? What we have discovered as we go through this process of within our profession developing a new set of ethical principles and enforcing them is that it's hard work, right? We probably have a good sense, a good intuition much of the time as to what we think is unethical. When you get down to writing an ethics violation and say what exactly is the violative part and what part of our code does it relate to? And would there, is it just sort of subjective in terms of who is analyzing it? That's where it gets tricky. Some things are easy and some things are very hard. 
So that's why it took us a while to get to the next phase. A complaint process. When I spoke to you or we spoke to you last year, we did not have a complaint process. We did not have an enforcement mechanism. And the reason we didn't have an enforcement mechanism for the most part is because we're not an enforcement body. We are not a certifying, authorizing, or policing body. I have no authority to tell anyone, our organization has no authority to tell anyone whether or not they can do business. That's not what we do. An accrediting body, such as CARF or the Joint Commission, can tell you whether you can keep their accreditation. A state licensing body can tell you whether you can, you can have or keep your license. I can't, we can't do those things. We can say, if you want to be in this room, if you want to be part of the society, this is what you do. So at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of authority to make anybody do anything. What we do have is the opportunity to say, if you want to be part of something that really makes this work better for people, be part of this and follow these rules. Let's agree on that. And that's really what this is about. So when someone says, great, now you're going to kick people out, that's not the, per that's not the point. The point is not to kick people out. The point is to, kick is to bring people in and help us all create a better way of doing business, right? So if we are to find, based on a legitimate complaint um, and a thorough review process, that one of our members is truly in violation of one of our principles, our first measure is to go to them and talk to them about improving that measure, about changing that practice so that you can stay part of the community, right? Um, let's problem solve this. Uh, that's the first step. Ultimately, the, the death penalty, if you will, of anything we could do um, is, to, uh, is to remove the person from our membership. And you know what? They'll probably live to fight another day. But that's what we can do. The NAATP ethics complaint policy and procedure has been adopted for purposes of providing a mechanism for oversight of a member organization's compliance with the NAATP code. Failure to comply with the code is a breach of the requirements of NAATP membership and may be grounds for termination of a member as provided in this policy. The policy and procedure is grounded in the agreement between the agreement between NAATP and its member whereby upon becoming a member of the NAATP society, members not only agree to adopt and adhere to the code, they also agree to the termination of their membership should they be found to have violated the code pursuant to this procedure. That's what we're going to do. We have a whole process a due process, a fair process that allows us to review a legitimately provided complaint that is not anonymous, um, uh, that does not reveal patient data, um, that is uh, which policy has been carefully and rigorously drafted by our group and our legal counsel to protect people's rights. Um, and it is our intention to follow that and go forward with that. We think this is really important. Right? We think this is going to make us a healthier society. We think that we're going to serve people better. And we think the outside world, which has reason to be suspicious of our behavior, can begin to trust us. Our board chair emphasized as his theme, I think, for this conference, really, if you get down to it, trust. Trust in our organization, trust in me as a director, trust in our board of directors, and then ultimately uh, trust in a society that demonstrates uh, best practice. So that's why we're here, 
and I hope that this sounds promising to you. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big undertaking to go from no code to a code to an enforcement policy to beginning to work these, these complaints, and, if, and they're coming in. We have, we have several. So, if, a, if someone complains against an entity or individual who is not or which is not a member of NAATP, we simply tell them that's not a member, we have no jurisdiction to do that. If it is a member, we, take, we begin the process of taking a look at it. Those process requirements within our administrative uh, work are all articulated on the new website. You can see it, you can see exactly what we do and how we do it. And as I said, I want to iterate that our goal is not to kick people out. Our goal is to improve our ethical practice. Those are my thoughts as we begin. What I'd like to do now is begin with uh, uh, introductory comments from each of our panelists, beginning with our chair, Art Vandeveer. Please welcome him. Thank you, Marvin. <clears throat> I'm going to just briefly do a retrospective of uh, where we've come from in the past so that I can leave time for my colleagues to talk about current events because that's really what we're most interested in this room. But being an old guy, uh, you know, up until really just recently, I have long felt that, that we can learn from our mistakes in the past and if, and if we pay attention to that, we're really not doomed to repeat those again. You know, it's, the older you get, the more opportunities you have just to be wrong. In 1995, um, I got an invitation to appear in Fort Worth, and uh, I didn't really understand who I was going to meet with or what it was about. I knew things were up because two months prior to that, uh, the FBI and a whole bunch of U-Haul trucks had arrived at Charter Grapevine Hospital and loaded up all of their medical records and all of their administer, uh, administrative records, financial records, and drove away. That was interesting. Uh, my wife was in business development there at the time and, and came home and said, I think I'm going to be home for an indeterminate amount of time. <laughs> so anyway, I, I was called and I showed up and uh, I can't remember what building it was. You know, This is one of those things, that it, it's not a life-changing career move, but it's, it's a memorable one. And so I entered this large uh, conference room that had a round table. And there was a row of people sitting on the inside loop of the round table, and then there was a row of people sitting behind them against the wall. And they introduced themselves. The first uh, uh, woman stood up and said, uh, we're representatives of the U.S. Department of Justice, and uh, these gentlemen over here represent the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and these gentlemen here represent the uh, Texas uh, uh, Office of Attorneys General, and we just have a few questions that we'd like to to ask after we swear you in this morning. You know, it's interesting because uh, when, when you don't have a guilty conscience, everything just, you know, I mean, it, it was tense, but everything was just, from then on, it got very interesting to me. I, I had the, I'm not standing in front of you as a paragon of virtue. I had the fortunate uh, of working with uh, four employers uh, from 1979 and, until that time none of which, all of which had applied census pressure, but no one had ever said, go outside the lines, you know. Uh, they'd never, never asked for any of these kinds of things. So I thought, this is certainly going to be interesting. 
And of course, a U.S. Uh, Department of Justice was there because they wanted to know about abuses in Champus, you know, who had been uh, engaged in fraudulent billing, you know, not delivering services uh, or making money off of services to military and their family members. Uh, the FBI was interested certainly in Medicare as well as insurance fraud and so forth. But I'm just going to just go through a quick list of the things that, that the questions that they asked. And, and, you know, I never, they never said, uh, you know, where these questions particularly had come from or where they were going to go with them. But, but uh, the first one had to do with referral fees. Was I aware of referral fees in, in the industry? Yes. Had I ever paid referral fees? No. Um, what's the going rate for referral fees at that time? you could buy a patient with good insurance for about $5,000. Uh, I understand it's not that much more today. 7000 is uh, what I've heard, you know, somebody with, with Affordable Care Act um, insurance for $7,000. You know, the thing that was re really interesting to me is what I had heard gossiped around about fuzzy lines. Well, I'm not sure this is right or wrong. It was very clear to me that it was very clear to them what was right and what was wrong. Um, they asked about uh, kickbacks, um, which I thought, you know, fee splitting, those kinds of things. And, and they asked an odd question. They said, Art, what, uh, or Mr. Vanderveer, what was your, yes, we weren't on first name basis. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your medical director. And I said, they said, what's the stipend that you pay your medical director? And I said, uh, $36,000 a year. They said, Tell us about your, your hospital. I said, Well, I, I'm the CEO of a 180 bed psychiatric hospital that has a unit of 20 beds for substance abuse on it. And they said, you pay him 36000 a year? I said, yeah, that, you know, this is 95, right? That's the going stipend. And so, so they asked me to, um, you know, discuss what his duties were. Head of the it's an open medical staff. And they said, what would you think of, of a drug and alcohol rehab center that's not far from you here who has 45 beds that pays their medical director $250,000 a year? I said, Oh my God, I guess, I don't know, uh, I'm speechless. And that's all I said about that because I really, I was taken back. I learned more about fraudulent stuff in that thing that I'd heard about working in the field since 1979. Um, so kickbacks of, of all kinds, uh, fraudulent billing, um, you know, inflating charges a thousand percent over usual, usual and customary charges because we haven't seen that today. You know, urine drug screens weren't anything in those days. I mean, you paid five dollars for a a cup for somebody to pee in, and you know you probably charge $25 on their bill in those days. Now, you know, lab uh, reasonable lab fee we've been billing for years, 150 bucks. You know, 1,200 to $2,500 is uh, there's you know that attracts attention. Um, so fraudulent billing. The other thing they asked about was moving patients. Uh, in those days, you it was easy to get four to six weeks lengths of stay, and so if you ran somebody's insurance out for that length of stay, if you moved them to another facility in another state, you could start them all over again and run their insurance. And those things, they had lots of questions around that. Um, basically, the fraudulent billing things had to do with uh, overcharging or charging uh, for services that weren't delivered and so forth. These are the kinds of things that um, you know, they wanted, they were very, very curious about. Now, the sad thing, as I said in my article, is it appears that we're headed towards that same precipice today. Um, either the new generation, I know Wall Street's pretty young, so they weren't you know, around 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Um, a lot of the gray hair, there's some gray hair in, in, in this room that, that I know is, you know, you were in business at the same time that we were back in those days. And so you understand what I'm talking about. But the, the newer generation um, seems to be able to rationalize things that, that are clearly wrong 
but they use what, what I call a Robin Hood defense. It's okay to steal from the, from the rich insurance companies because we're helping people get sober, you know? Or it's okay to steal your website that you spent millions of dollars and forever uh, developing a reputation, sticking our logo on top of it so that somebody will pay attention to, to our logo. It's okay to do that, um, you know, uh, because it's for a good cause. Uh, these, these things really worry me. And it's interesting because I'll, I'll quickly conclude by saying, you know, I said in my article, um, I had an administrator who was just, you know, I grew, I'm a native Californian. I came back to San Antonio for graduate school. I finished my master's degree. I left my surfboard hanging in the garage in, in Santa Cruz, California, and I was going back. And I got, uh, I, I, I got a job in the drug and alcohol uh, treatment center in Hunt, Texas, and never, ever thought about going back to California. But I had, you know, these Texans, they're, they're colorful. And the guy that said, once you get past the ethics in, in our business, it's a piece of cake. And the, uh, Joe Abercrombie, who was my mentor uh, as a counselor, said one day after we had heard stories about what was going on, we had heard that, um, you know, well, what was going on, he said, you know, Art, said, it's kind of like walking into hell armed with a squirt gun trying to put the fire out in terms of dealing with this unethical behavior. Well, I, I so much more like what Bobby Ferguson said last year, and it's become my guiding, and that is as long as you keep light on this, as long as we talk about it, we write articles about it, we don't, we don't hide it under a bush, as long as we keep light on unethical things, these guys will scurry away, you know, because it's not going to work for them. They aren't going to make money. And so with that, I will say thank you very much and sit down. Hi, everybody. I'm Bobby. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> um, I'm going to be brief. I, I think we'll answer a question later, and I'll get to talk about uh, competitive practices in the solution. I had my turn over the past two years um, doing screenshots about internet searches and having some fun, um, you know, just sort of uh, revealing some practices and using the Jaywalker brand and, and so forth. But um, I'm filled really with a new energy from, unfortunately, uh, I don't think anybody in this room really needs to be here. I'm thrilled that you are here. Um, there's many uh, who are not in this room that might benefit. But, um, you know, I loved hearing Marv talk about, uh, you know, the difference between uh, guidelines, standards, ethics, laws. Um, we are a like-minded group of people with a common call to purpose, and many of us have been given a second shot. And later, we're going to hear... Um, you know, our presenters talk about alignment, you know, bringing our spiritual principles into our business practices. Um, what I guess I want to say is that um, I feel that in this organization um, there's been a shift from uh, the problem to the solution. And I think that um, I'll have a chance a little bit later to talk about, um, you know, sort of the difference between contriving a brand and revealing our community and how we can um, actually compete on uh, a common platform of, of ethics and how that brings the little guy um, up into a, a different space uh, around trust and respect and, and relationship um, in the marketplace. So I'll talk about that later. I, I will say my take to start this out, though, is that 
Um, I'll, I'll tell a couple of quick stories. I, uh, John Curtis is sitting over there, and he hired me when I was um, just a couple of years, three years out of treatment, and he had been um, the uh, director at Fellowship Club um, when I was a patient. So he knew the very worst of me and took me in anyway. And um, we had, uh, in, in the year that I reported to John before he left to start the retreat, we had to let somebody go. And it was somebody that worked on my staff that had, um, you know, inadvertently violated a patient's privacy in the community. And I was deciding whether I needed to quit my job because it felt so wrong for me to let this person go. It seemed harmless and innocent. And, um, you know, John coached me up. And this was old school. This is, this is where we grew up, you know. And, and um, it was a sacred principle. And, in fact, um, still friends with the person that had to be let go. And they, there, was, there was smoke and there was fire and there was more to the story. And I won't go into the details. But I, I couldn't believe how brutal and black and white and barbarian it felt. Um, to let somebody go for violating a private, uh, a patient's right to privacy by accident, and and um, it turned out they were it was that employee's ex-husband, and it wasn't as accidental as I had thought. And but John coached me up and walked me through it. I opened a program um, ten years later, and we had a family therapist who. Um, was wonderful. We were brand new. We were just, uh, and the first client we had come through there was a, a guy named Randy from Vero Beach, and he was a success story. He finished our program and then um, stayed in the community, got a job working for the town of Carbondale, and um, <clears throat> she was passing around a picture of uh, him celebrating his birthday. It was he was three months sober, but he was a, it was his belly button birthday. Uh, dinner at her house with her two kids and um, I, I said you know you can't do that and here she was this she'd been in private practice she thought it was like he had graduated from college and he was a professor I, she didn't get trained ever nobody ever told her that you can't have a former client over to your house for dinner 90 days after he's out of treatment to celebrate his birthday with your kids and she was put on 90 days probation. And if John was there, I'd have fired her. But John wasn't around, so <laughs> we gave her another chance. And um, but it was about coaching her up. And fast forward to it wasn't even three or four years ago. We had a couple of guys, um, a lot of men. There's a few in this room who get sober in our program, um, are gracious enough to stick around, and some come to work at our program. Um, we're not a big program, so there's not many jobs. And um, a couple of guys wanted and applied for and didn't get a job at Jaywalker. And um, these are good men, Alex and Griff. And, um, you know, they went and got a job at a local detox and were working for 10 bucks an hour, awful hours, crappy conditions, really in the solution. And one of them had posted on LinkedIn that they were working for another program and in Texas. Are not you guys, but anyway, they, and I was, and I thought, wow, that's an upgrade from ten dollars an hour at detox, and um, and and it turns out what they were getting was fifteen hundred dollars a piece for every patient that they could pull out of the Aspen detox and ship out to Texas, and they were proud of it. They told their mom they're working as a treatment professional, 
That's what being becoming a treatment professional was to them because they'd been told that by the owner of the program to whom they were sending the, the patients. And um, we sorted that out and, and one of those guys is now one of our best employees and, and, and it was just in both cases about education and that's what we're doing here today. I, th I don't think there's one person in this field who gets up in the morning to try to do harm and yet there's harm being done. And I think a lot of it comes from um, assuming that if you have um, standards of conduct, boundaries, and understanding, uh, you know, of, of 42 CFR and, and privacy and everything, that everybody else has those understandings as well. And what's right and what's wrong. And I think it's exactly what Martin was talking about. Um, by sharing best practices, by upping our game, um, by coaching people along, uh, I think there's a lot of bright, young, caring people that don't know where the lines are, and a lot of it's just about, um, you know, I needed to be shown how, uh, design for living that worked in my recovery, and I think we need to show one another as colleagues uh, how to show up. And I'll just turn it over to Rick. Thanks. Thanks, Bobby. So a few weeks ago, I'm sitting at my desk, and uh, I got pissed off at my urologist. No pun intended. Um, true story. Um, so I decided it was time to switch. And of course, I did what any of us here would do. Went to the computer, Googled urology, Ben Salem. Ben Salem is a town in Bucks County, Pennsylvania where my office is located. Guess what happened? I got hits on the first page and actually the second page with more urologists than I knew existed in little old Bucks County, Pennsylvania. A uh, bunch of them were in Ben Salem. Uh, most of the rest of them were, in were within five to eight miles of where I sat at that moment. I said, wow, this is going to be a tough job. Uh, I then thought, hey, you know, it's a good opportunity to do a, another Google search. So I left Ben Salem in the search bar, and I put, took out urology, and I put in addiction treatment. Guess what I got? Florida, California, Nevada, Arizona. I got uh, search pages with treatment in or near Ben Salem, and I went in, and I said, oh, look, there's our name. There's the name of the outpatient center down the street. There's... And then all of a sudden, boom, pop up. Need help choosing treatment in Ben Salem? Call this number. And I said, I don't recognize that 800 number. So, of course, I call. And then I look at three or four more others like that. They're all the same. I then took out addiction treatment. I put in, I don't remember the order, but I put in Ben Salem, cardiology, I put in uh, diabetes, I put in cancer, I put in dermatology. Guess what I got with every one of them? Docs and hospitals within five to ten miles of where I was sitting at that moment. <clears throat> well, by the way, I will tell you that, that the good news on that search for addiction treatment, I did find Living Green Foundation uh, 
about three-quarters of the way down page one. Uh, So I said, hmm, this is interesting. But before I left the search engine, after uh, pulmonary disease and dermatology, I then went back and I said, let me put in mental health psychiatry. Guess what I got? I got almost the same hits that I did when I put in addiction treatment with a lot of those same facilities and a lot of the same pop-ups with the same phone numbers. Now, I realize that this is nothing new to anybody in this room. Uh, But what strikes me with this is, you know, our our discussion yesterday, or one of the discussions yesterday, a very good one about parity. And we're all behind that, and we're all supportive of it, and it's coming far too late, although better than not at all. But, you know... What do we tell our kids when they're growing up? You know, if you want to be treated like an adult, particularly our teenagers, if you want to be treated like an adult, try to act like one. Well, if we want to really be and be treated as a, a, a real part of the medical establishment, why don't we, and I realize the vast majority of people in this room do act like grown-ups, but why don't we as a field not only all act that way, uh, but demand that everybody else acts that way too. Um, what was stated about the, uh, uh, the the limited ability of, or the lack of ability for NAATP to enforce uh, uh, the ethics standards, that, that may be true, but we do have, there are other avenues for enforcement. I know in Pennsylvania, uh, I can call the Pennsylvania Department of Licensing, Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs uh, Licensing Department. Um, And they will act on unethical behavior, advertising services that either don't exist uh, or promoting services on your website that uh, that you're not licensed for. They will act on that. Um, You can, and I have called Google about unethical violations of their practices, uh, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, um, they run across the board. They're, the, the gentleman from yesterday's presentation, um, Malik and John from uh, uh, Web Consoles, I don't know if they're here today, but they did a very nice job. They talked about creating effective, appropriate, and ethical websites. And if I may take the liberty of summar- summarizing some of the things they talked about, no smoke and mirrors, Uh, uh, you need to be who you say you are, Uh, don't uh, deceive your users, don't pretend to be who you are not, don't pretend to be where you are not, don't pretend to have what you don't have. Um, And there are lots of ways to do that. And Google will stop you if, if, if we try to do that. Things like what they call black hat injections and uh, doorway pages, uh, keyword flooding. Google will act to stop it, and they'll respond to your complaints about somebody else, too. Now, the one thing that I'll slightly disagree with the gentleman from yesterday, uh, or maybe our timetables are a little different, they said that the good guys will win out, the truth will win out, and that the the guys who have false information out there will be found out or the users won't listen to them. 
That, that may be true in the long run, but I don't want to take a chance with a hurting, vulnerable family who's doing the only thing they know how to do today, and that is search Google, and they get a number popping up in their face and say, good, they want to help me. And they call, and they get hit hard with a sales pitch. And how do they know that isn't the best thing to do or the only thing to do? And I'm not saying those places offer bad treatment. Um, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, but I, what I will say, uh, what I will say is that, um, well, Livingren uh, is 50 years old next month. Now, that doesn't make Livingren any better than somebody who's 40 or 20 or two years old. We all know it's about our programs, it's about our staff, it's about our philosophy, it's about our practices. <clears throat> but what that 50 years does mean to me and to many of the rest of you uh, is that it's oftentimes the main differentiation uh, between our facilities, and that is our history, our name, our integrity, that we've taken a long time to build up. Uh, and in today's environment of internet and anonymity, where everyone starts out on an equal platform with a, a keyboard and a computer, um, history and reputation don't necessarily exist. Um, and the consumers don't have the resources to know the difference. They're not looking to see the year you were founded. They want to see how you can help them now. Um, so I suggest very strongly that, that we do all that we can as individual treatment centers and as watchdogs for our industry. Because as was stated before, uh, I think Art just said, we're, we're on the precipice. Uh, for those of you who were around in the 80s, with the big boom that we saw in the growth of treatment, uh, many of those folks and those companies disappeared or folded or went under uh, when managed care came in and decimated. And I know it almost put us out of business for a while. Um, and we invited managed care to come in. I don't think they were even looking at us until some of the abuses were discovered. Um, so I, I hope we're not going down that same path, but uh, I also hope that each and every one of us here can help ensure that, that we don't. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. At this point, I would like to invite uh, two NAATP members to please come up and, and take their seats on the panel. Mr. Ben Court from Cedar at University Hospital in Denver, Colorado, and Gina Thorne from Lakeview Health. Please, please welcome them, folks. I would ask our tech person, thank you very much, to see if you can load and, and begin Mr. Court's uh, boom. Guy's good. Um, session, but I'm going to ask a question real quick, Ben, before we, we get you going, uh, Bobby. So I want to get the sort of obvious out of the way, the cat out of the bag here. Look, I've seen signs that say recently acquired, um, just consolidated. I don't get excited about that. Um, Consolidation may be an appropriate response in certain circumstances. It is not necessarily uh, a, a way in which to improve treatment. And um, 
vulnerability and weakness of a ma and pa center, and I don't mean that in any pejorative way, I think that some of the best treatment in, in the world is available at historically sound, small, 50-bed, hard-working, evidence-based, uh, principled practices. And I would send my, my, my son or daughter to one of those places. But if they're vulnerable, if they can't stay in business, they can be subject to being acquired. Or they can work so hard to stay alive that they lose sight of their own principles. Bobby, consolidation, influx of private money, census pressure. How does an organization like I just described stay ethical and uh, stay in business and do well for itself and its employees? Um, is this on? Check, check. Hello? Um, so thank you. The, and I'll be quick because I really um, value and appreciate what uh, Gina and Ben have to say, and they've got, um, they'll speak to this topic as well. Uh, Again, another little story. There, uh, there was a, a program. We operate uh, our treatment center in a uh, valley called the Roaring Fork Valley, and have enjoyed um, a relative monopoly until uh, a year ago, when um, one a larger program <coughs> showed up. Uh, and the interesting thing about how they showed up may provide um, some insight. I, I, I always like to um, <clears throat> talk from personal experience and about our company because it's really, um, you know, my worldview and, it, and it's something I, I, I have uh, an accurate and real-time perspective on. But um, they have a website which now has, like many great re retailers, uh, Aspen, Colorado on their shopping bag. So um, when you go to their website, they offer treatment in a number of locations, including Aspen, Colorado. When you click on Aspen, Colorado on their website, um, what you find is uh, 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 skiing, mountain biking, and hiking, icons of that. So they, they had a... Um, they, they don't have images of it. What you cannot find out is who works there, what the staff bios are, the fact that it's actually located about 30 miles from Aspen in a different town, pictures of the facilities. And my point is I feel that that puts my program at a competitive advantage because in a environment where it is about caveat emptor, um, consumers are uh, have, having that this this consumer beware environment. Um, the, I think the number one thing that ratchets up uh, a potential uh, family's anxiety is the unknown. And so what you see with these optimized websites that feature insurance before clinical care don't have a picture of or even. <laughs> A statement of accurate statement of where they're located. Um, they use um, stock photos. Uh, is is there's no specificity about place and 
uh, relationships are, are built on respect and trust, and they're not earning any by doing that. And what impresses me is not that there's so much of that, but that good new programs tend to copy that model. And so my counsel on, comp on, on competition is go old school, go homegrown, um, respect the rights to privacy of your clients by not revealing their identity in your images, but at the same time show your facilities, feature your staff, brag on what makes you different, and go as local as possible. So if it's, um, you know, uh, the difference between a national hotel chain and a local B&B, um, show yourself off in a way that's individual. And then um, the other piece, of course, is I feel that um, we, we put together an ethics policy for our company, and if you want to see it, um, you can just uh, Google Jay Walker, and it will take you to a treatment center in Delray Beach. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, but once you find your way to Colorado, you, you'll see things on there that are decide what you want to talk about, but decide about it from the perspective of what would a family want to know. Our families want to know what happens if their kid gets kicked out. What is the basis for that decision and what happens to their money? So we have a refund policy, but we take 10 days of, of, that, of that treatment um, tuition as an administrative fee. And I'm not here to tell you that that's fair or that that's right, just that we tell them what we do, you know, just that they know going in. Um, and I think the most important thing that we have embraced as um, a competitor is that we want marketing to basically uncover a closer look at who we are, how, how we practice our programs, what our practice is, and we want not to contrive a brand, not to copy what other people are doing, but to reveal our community in as much detail as possible. So. Um, to the yeah. extent that we're able to use marketing as a principle around the closer you look, the better we look, you accept that a website has its limitations and the purpose of our website is to get them to come for a visit, to look our clients in the eye, to see people that aren't crossing days off the calendar because they can't wait to get out or whatever it is. But um, <coughs> I'd say uh, those are some, some principles um, that may permit uh, us who are uh, unique and independent to compete um, by being less slick, less optimized, uh, more individualized, and um, maybe a little more old school. So we can listen to our heart and our intuition and have our counselors contribute to our website um, and have them featured instead of being driven by a marketing consultant that will try to make you feel better by looking more like the big guys. And um, I think with that, we could go on to All right. our yeah. next step. Thanks, Bobby. Ben, come on up. Thanks, Marv. Thanks, Natap. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out for the last day. There's still more good stuff. Don't go away yet. Which one of these advances? The big one? Yes. And the green is forward. We are going to skip uh, this stuff and get to the quick one. I don't have a presentation so much as I have an introduction to Gina. 
And I want you guys to hear her. Bobby said it. I love it. Everybody who needs to be here is playing grab ass on the beach or vaping or something. Um, I'm, I'm so happy you guys are here and uh, welcome to, to the choir. I'm sure you would sound lovely were you singing. You guys are the ambassadors. Natap are the ambassadors. You are the thought leaders. This is the room of ambassadors and thought leaders. I think that there's a responsibility that comes with that, and I think that it is, it's inherent to being the thought leaders. And, and Bobby said this, uh, that it is, it's focusing more on what the solution is. A very dear friend of mine, um, and a lot of you know what she's doing now, and uh, I, I get it, we might not even like it, but where she came from was a wonderful place. Denny Curry said two years ago at an event that I was at that there's no way that you can make an argument that this is not a full-on epidemic. By every definition of the word, this is an epidemic. If you had, what, what do we report, maybe, maybe one-fourth of all of the op opiate overdoses, and if those killed more people in car accidents last year, and our country's still thinking, maybe we'll figure this out, maybe we won't figure this out. This is an epidemic, and this room has a solution. Like, we've got it. And one of my biggest fears is that you are going to have this crisis in confidence from the consumer who says, yeah, I know those guys. Those are the guys who maxed out my kids' lifetime benefits in three months, making them pee in a cup and cutting a sample into threes. Those are the guys who every time I get online, they send this, I know it, I know it. And, and this is the thing that keeps me up at night and, and why I, it means a ton to me, the, the new guy, the little guy, to be invited by NATAP to uh, take part in this because this is the club. Um, that's what keeps me up at night, is that when they realize we've got an epidemic, they're not going to look to us for the solution because we've given ourselves the black eye. So as the ambassadors here, please carry this message. You guys are the ones who are here listening. Get it out there. Advocating for change, you ready for this, is way more than complaining. We can do that all we want. And I'll give you my last slide here in a minute, or maybe I have four, three or four. Um, advocating for change is actually trying to help. It's creating policies and procedures and encouraging people to abide by them. It is, wait, wait for this one, mentorship, which I'll hit in a second. And you, you guys, this is not, this last one for me isn't about ethics in the sense that we all think about it. We say, ethics and we all get we think about deceptive internet marketing we think about unnecessary ua testing etc 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 practicing these principles in all of our affairs my friends means we have to practice these principles not just business but i can't tell you, like i am okay trading stories about somebody who did something wrong so i don't do it anymore but please and I'm, I mean this, stop coming to me and telling me all of the horror stories about the crazy things you've seen. If, if you got beef, address the beef with the person, which is why I, I love this. We've, sometimes I feel like I'm in, sometimes I, I've got a daughter who's in seventh grade, and sometimes I feel like I'm outside of a room at a slumber party with everybody. Did you hear whatever? We know there's bad stuff. You guys are the solution and the ambassadors. And Gina, I promise I'm almost done. I think uh, second to the last one. Keep your own side of the street clean. You guys know this. This room does this. And here's where I end and hand it off to Gina because you have a case study here. The question that Marv uh, asked Bobby, which was perfect, is why? 
Like this is about making money, right? Not everybody gets to be a nonprofit. I, I get to, so I can jump up on this high horse and do. Not everybody gets to be a nonprofit. This is a business where you got to make money and pay staff. But you can do this in a way that's more advantageous for your business. We rehabilitate people. We are the rehab industry. So as people who believe this for our patients, nobody's too far gone. Good Lord, we could tell some stories in this room, couldn't we? Nobody is too far gone. So my challenge here, and is for many of you who don't know me or anything about me, or that I came from a place, a nonprofit, that believed very passionately in apprenticeship and in mentorship at Phoenix. There are people out there who are doing wrong who aren't going away. You don't get rid of portfolios with 11,000 beds and 8,000 beds. and Oh yeah, maybe this lawsuit will do it. They'll finally be gone. <laughs> That's not how the world works. There are enough people here, though, that if there's social pressure, if there's us practicing these principles in all of our affairs, and if maybe for a minute... Like, what if the concept of rehab didn't just apply to our patients? What if it applied to our industry? I'm done writing these folks off. I'm definitely not done calling them out. When we see bad stuff, you guys nailed it. we got to call it out. And now we got a complaint procedure, thankfully, where we can say, this isn't okay. But I'm also, like, casting out into the cold. Some of you have to do that, and it's right. We have to separate ourselves from everybody who's still shooting dope if we're going to stay sober. But at some point, maybe we get to invite them to a meeting. And so my encouragement to you guys is the people who we have always said is the, like, let's start to be the example, let's start to be the ambassadors, and let's start to, instead of just say, bad, go away from me, like, bad, I'm not going to do business with you, man. I'm not, because that's a blight on our brand. But I am going to sit down with you, and I am going to have coffee, and I am going to say why, and I am going to make the point that Bobby just made, the business is better this way. Unless you're just in this for quarter, 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 if you want to do this for a year or two, there's actually more money to be made being ethical. And the greatest example that I have ever seen and why I work so closely with these guys is what Lakeview did. Five or six years ago, Lakeview wasn't in the club. Like, they'd come into the room and everybody'd sort of be like, oh, Lakeview. Look at what they've done. And not only is Lakeview in the club now, like, these are folks who a lot of us respect and tip our hat to when they come in. They are a case study in the transformation of this and the rehabilitation of uh, industry and not just a patient. So Gina's got amazing stuff to share. Thank you for being here. Good afternoon, everyone. I want to first of all thank NWTP and, and Ben, of course. I'm just going to have you come with me every time we travel because you're just like, you know, very motivational. Um, so I'm going to tell you a, a little story. Uh, but first, let me tell you that uh, three years ago, I got a phone call from my CEO, Roy Serpa, who, who said, um, so I want to do something that's really transformational, and I want you to be a part of that. And at the time, it was like just this idea of this organization, and I knew Lakeview. I lived in Virginia. I was aware of who Lakeview was, but um, and I wasn't overly excited about the idea of, of coming to Jacksonville and working for Lakeview, but his story was very intriguing to me. If you had told me three years later that I would be standing up at NAATP talking about a transformational concept 
for this industry as a result of making this move to Jacksonville, I wouldn't have believed it. So while the transformation has been really substantial for the organization as a whole, I believe that what we've been able to afford the industry is an opportunity to stand up and say, yes, we did something at one time that was not good. We did something at one time that needed to be addressed. And we are cleaning our side of the street because of that, and we are successful today because we did the right thing. And so we're going to talk more a little bit about what that looks like, um, but I, I feel like I need to put that caveat out there so that you all realize that um, we're making ourselves vulnerable as an organization. I can't say that I've talked to a lot of organizations that would stand up here and talk about this kind of thing and that they did it at one time. So I'm just slightly nervous, but very excited. So thank you very much for giving us this opportunity. All right, so global aspects of marketing ethics. A lot of what we're going to talk about briefly has already been discussed. High points have been hit already. But what I want to talk to you about today is this idea of, of ethics in the sense of how could this possibly be an issue for us? How could we as an industry possibly needing to be talking about ethics, knowing what we do for a living? We need to remember that we are considered the experts, that with facing a national opioid crisis that we have right now, that we have to be a part of the solution and that we're entrusted. It's our responsibility to be entrusted with this crisis situation. But at the same time, we're being faced with what the realities are in our industry. It's almost like there's this outdoor piece, but inside when you open up, you find out that we've got a lot of competitive pressure going on. We also have organizational cultures that are not healthy. We know that there's a lot of internal cultures in organizations that we talk to that are really struggling from a leadership standpoint, from an employee engagement standpoint, which makes our job even more complicated and more difficult. And our personal bandwidth as far as being able to educate folks about that and making sure that we're fully informed, that we have full information so that we can do what we need to do to make the difference. So there's some real realities that are going on in the industry today that we're facing against a disease that, if we're not careful, could consume us. And so we have an opportunity. So the ethics discussion has, in my opinion, been oversimplified. It's no longer just about talking about where your location is, where your amenities are, and where your services are. It's much bigger than that. When we talk in the rooms about what's happening um, at, at, and most specifically, people talk about Florida, South Florida, Arizona, Southern California, we realize that there's a lot more going on than just talking about the digital practices. And this accountability piece will continue to resonate as we move forward through the talk. And many of you have already been asked to think about what is your role going to be in addressing the issues of ethics in this industry. And the work that we do, it's much bigger than ourselves. It's a reflection of your center. It's a reflection of the treatment industry. It can compromise the actual belief in treatment itself that we ourselves are a barrier in getting people into treatment because we've created disbelief. And that's dangerous. And that's a lot of responsibility for us to carry. So let's examine a couple of motivating factors that contribute to this issue of unethical behavior. First, toxic organizational culture. So some of the best brands, if someone would like to shout out, what is a good brand that you can think of that has a strong, clear mission and employees are empowered? Any ideas? Southwest, Betty Ford Hazelton, Google. I mean, we can go on and on, but there are those organizations that we read about in books every day that resonate with clear mission and employee engagement. 
Those brands that are at risk are typically numbers focused, they're misaligned reward systems, micromanagement, working strictly for the measurement of the system, and weighing the ends over the means. We all know that those organizations exist in our industry, and we all have either worked for them at one time, or we've witnessed and heard stories about what's going on. The second reason why people might practice unethical marketing strategies is not knowing when the slump will end. How many of us have heard, particularly those in the marketing room that are marketers, oh, census is going down. What are we going to do to get that census back up? How long is it going to stay there? And what you would typically consider maybe not an option, all of a sudden you might make a knee-jerk reaction and do a tactic that may not necessarily be within your purview. But you're going to do it because at the end of the day, you've got to keep your doors open. So fear can very often be a powerful force that precipitates unethical marketing practices. And then ignorance, which we've talked a lot about on this panel today. We have a limited bandwidth. There are those out there that are brand new in the industry, and they almost have this follow-the-leader concept. They see what other people are doing. Bobby spoke about it a moment ago. And they think, well, that might be the right way to do it without any true education and understanding that maybe that's not the right way to do it. What's important is, is if you as an organization don't have an infrastructure to support the marketing side, particularly the digital marketing side, and you're outsourcing to a third-party vendor, make sure that you understand that they understand what your ethics are, of what you want them to know, because they are going to be a part of your team. They are going to be someone who's going to be carrying your brand, and that's precious. And so if that organization doesn't buy into what you're doing, then they're not the right organization for you. And so it's on you to do your due diligence to make sure you have that conversation, that very honest conversation about what you expect as an organization to protect your brand and making sure that somebody's not going to take it and run with it. Okay, so now on to our case study. So... I talked with a digital, or one of our digital marketing directors uh, a few years ago, and when he came on board at Lakeview, Lakeview's been around since 2001. It, um, it's operated out of Jacksonville, Florida, and they, have a, they had a very robust digital marketing department. I believe at the time it was 12 or 13 people when I came on board, which in many cases would be considered a full-service communications firm for a lot of folks. And when he came on in the organization, he was told that there were three primary online real estate pages that they needed to manage and that he was going to oversee. Our primary site, Lakeview, which was our portal. Second was our Stepping Stone sister program. And third was a online property called Recovery Connection. But when he did a deeper dive, he actually found hundreds and hundreds of microsites that had been developed. And Many of you might be aware of what those are, um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, what, would, what was happening was is that they were creating pages and they were creating, um, in essence, organizations, if you will, in key states around the country and saying that treatment could be offered in your, your state and in your, in your community, call this number. And as many people have alluded to, you call that number and it would take us into our intake department. And our intake department would have to spend several minutes trying to talk to these people about, well, no, actually, you're calling Jacksonville. You're not calling Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, so they had to do a lot of work to try to get these clients to come in. Did it work? Oh, yeah, it worked. It was successful and very lucrative. But the flip side to that is that it compromised the integrity and the reputation of the organization. 
At the same time, things are starting to change in the marketplace in regards to um, internet marketing. So the internet usage was growing exponentially, so there was a complete hub of opportunity. And I think that that's where we're seeing this now, of end users, our consumers, going to the website and searching out treatment. And if we talk to our families on the phone, they're gonna tell you, I've looked at 100 different websites and I have no idea which one is the right one. In many cases, it feels like a quagmire for them. So with the growth of internet use, and on top of that, mobile device use, people had to get creative. Now at the time, Lakeview was using yellow pages and internet as their primary driver of calls. So we had no outreach department, we had no client services team in the field talking about our program. Everything was coming directly off of the websites. So they had to get creative on how they were gonna bring business in, so they did a series of black hat strategies. In fact, at one point, they had two teams. They had a black hat team and they had a white hat team. And it was, um, the goal was to do whatever they could to get calls to come in at any expense. And these, and some of this was already mentioned in the previous presentations as far as what some of the black hat strategies have been used in the past. And I say past because we no longer do any of these any longer. So sometimes, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. In this case, Google did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. <laughs> so, so we got hit with a manual penalty. Now that manual penalty, this was the first manual penalty that we had in 2011. Saw a 90% drop in traffic. Now imagine you have no outreach team, your reputation's already compromised, and your only sense of revenue is coming from the internet, and you are listed way, way, way down at the end of the list. So this really did hurt the company substantially. But it didn't stop them because they rebuilt the website and continued to do those practices until 2013. And this is where I'm gonna talk briefly about sort of this transformational process of our organization and why it's so relevant, particularly in the conversation around private equity. Because it's my opinion, and I've been in this industry a little over a decade, that there is a place for private equity. I do believe that when you have the right person at the table, that you can see substantial change with an organization. And I believe that Lakeview was very fortunate to have that opportunity in 2013. We brought in new leadership. Now, everybody sees transition all the time. Now, our leadership was a little different because our CEO didn't come from the addiction world. In fact, I was, a little, I was a little skeptical when I first met him. You know, he came from home health care. I was like, how's this guy going to know anything about addiction? How's he going to make any change happen? That really wasn't what we were looking for. We weren't looking for addiction experts at the leadership level for this organization. We need somebody that was going to make organizational change happen. And why is this important when it comes to marketing ethics? Because at the end of the day, you can go to your marketing directors and you can go to your sales team and you can tell them, and I'm talking specifically to mid-level people here, not to your CEOs, that you want to do the right thing. You want to start doing the right thing, no more black hat work, we're going to no, no more patient brokering, we're going to do everything the right way. But if you don't have buy-in from your leadership, it's not going to work. Your leadership, it has to start at the top. Your leadership has to be on board. Your leadership has to believe the philosophy of ethics in order for everything to trickle down. 
So in a traditional business leadership structure, structure, how many of you know who Marcus Lemonis is? I learned about Marcus Lemonis recently. So what are his three Ps? People, product, process. And over that time in traditional leadership, you've got this 33% split across the board, right? And I'm not saying that traditional leadership is, doesn't have a place because it is valuable. In a healthcare business leadership structure, at least as far as Lakeview is concerned, people re represent 70%, service is 15%, process is 15%. Why is that important to us? Because we need to have the right people at the table in order to make change happen. Our Cinderella story did not happen without having the right people at the table that believed in the philosophy of what we do. And we have to make sure that what we do customizes, we have to customize our leadership to our audience that we're working with. Now this may not be the case for every organization, but I, I firmly believe that with behavioral health, specifically with the work that we do, that servant leadership is the solution. And I've witnessed it, I've experienced it, and I know that it works. And it also allows us to develop our employees. So here's your traditional leadership model, top down. Not saying it's bad, it's not a wrong style of leadership. It's an option that might fit best for some organizations, but it's important that you understand what your vision, values, and culture are of the organization so that it marries up to that leadership style. This is our leadership. It's reciprocal. Servant leadership is both a leadership philosophy and a set of leadership practices. So it shares power. It puts the needs of others first, and it helps people perform and develop at their best. Roy gave me the freedom and trust to know that as the director of marketing for Lakeview, that I wanted to adopt an ethics that was going to move us to the next level. And I believed in his philosophy, and I believed in the ethics of what the organization was moving toward. So he gave the team the space to do that. He allowed us to be able to identify the right kind of vendors, third-party people that we could work with to bring that to the table. But when you look at the characteristics of a server leader or servant leader, you see that it's shared leadership. It displays authenticity, which is so relevant for what we do in our industry. It develops people and it values people. And these three features are really important. Empowerment, communication, and accountability. And all of these are very relevant when it comes to what you're doing inside your organization, but I want you to think about what it means for us as an industry. We're not talking about just what we do in our microcosms of culture, of our own organizations. We're talking bigger than that. And with servant leadership, we lead with moral authority. It's really important. And on the basis of all of these pillars is our culture. So again, I share leadership with you, and I talk about it because for us, it was our secret sauce. It was the thing that made us successful. Am I saying that that's the case for every organization? I can't say that. I can tell you that it doesn't hurt to give it a try. It doesn't hurt for us as an industry, as individual organizations, to try something different because I do think that that's where the catalyst for change can begin. So some of the positive outcomes of servant leadership was we removed philosophy of numbers at any cost. We no longer forced or incented unethical behavior. We had a higher self-image created because we had a more positive culture our positive culture yielded healthier ideas and increased collaboration, and it yielded success, innovation, and expansion. And the reason why I'm standing here at NAATP as Lakeview Health is because we made some very tough decisions. We shut down sites. We, we moved 
old leadership out. We embraced the talent that we had internally. And more importantly, we cleaned our side of the street. My partner Derek and I could have gone out into the industry days after starting at Lakeview and said, that didn't happen on our watch, that's not our fault. But we didn't do that. We went out and spoke to referral sources and we took it, and we took it bad. I mean, we had people telling us things like, you guys aren't trustworthy, we can't work with you. But what we said is, we're gonna ask you to give us a try. And we know it's gonna take time. We knew that we had to work a recovery program. We needed to own our character defects and we needed to figure out a way to earn their trust back. So some of the final takeaways. Unethical practices are too numerous to list, but they're also growing. Like recovery, you are never done, but there are also constant threats that prevail. Being authentic is actually more successful. And remember that marketing is the liaison between the credentialed people and the families in need, alumni, and referring professionals. And remember to also be very smart about the partner agencies that you're working with. I feel like I need to add a couple features in here in regards to why we do what we do. So as an organization, we needed to get honest. We also needed to realize that we were going to be vigilant. We continued to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. So I tell a quick story, and it'll probably embarrass him, but one of our referral sources was very unhappy with us because we made a mistake. This was early on in our transition, um, and also when you're dealing with culture, nothing happens overnight. So teaching people to change was one of those things that we had to work through. And one of our referral sources got upset with us because he, they found out that we ate into an IOP benefit. And so he called and he said, you guys are no different. You're doing the same thing you always did. And Roy jumped in his car and drove to the referral source and he sat down and he said, we are very sorry we did this. We are paying you back. And that made all the difference for that referral source because he felt valued. He felt heard and he knew that we were owning our mistakes and we were making change happen. And it, it took time. It didn't happen overnight. But we appreciated his honesty. We were grateful to our referral sources for telling us what they had on their minds and what they think we needed to do to make a change. So what if our industry adopts a servant leadership principle? What if we led with moral authority? What if we fostered genuine and authentic, authentic communication? What if we empowered each other and we held each other accountable? I think that if we find that, instead of seeing each other as competition, we would be able to focus on our own real competitor, which is the disease itself. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I'm saying it's well worth it. Thank you. We have time for one or two questions. Not speeches, questions. Yes. Uh, I'm George. I have a place called Silver Living in Del Rey, and uh, I've been there for over two decades. And uh, no, I want to thank Bobby for making this reference. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, and, uh, I've been there for 20 years, walked in the wide world. Where you got from? You know, I don't figure what number I am when I come up on a Google. I figure out which page I'm going to be on. <laughs> But, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I really see, and I appreciate all your presentations, and I always love to hear this, and um, 
see down particularly in South Florida, and I'll tell you, where the Silicon Valley is drawn, there's no question about it, but you know, you're seeing it out there. Florida models opening up in Colorado and all over again. Yep. So you go over on your shirt. But a lot of the problems we have, I think we have to do a better job of educating them. Because these insurance fraud, the families, as well as the clients, are willing to do this. This doesn't happen by mistake. You know, they didn't just fall into it. They know exactly what's going on. And they don't care. And when, when you know, their kids are hijacked away to another choice, well, what am I going to do? So, you know, just some kind of feedback with regard to the general population because there, you know, there's two sides to all these. You know, there's the un <coughs> the unethical people in this field cannot practice unless they have Response, anyone? Here, here. Here, here. One more question. You had your hand up in the back. I don't know about local, but I, uh, we're based in Pennsylvania, and we have a very strong statewide association of providers. There's always a good resource. I, I guess it really depends on where you where you are. Yeah, and let me sort of think of that as a bigger sort of question about our role at NAATP in terms of serving its members by region. So as you all know, and I've been talking about for several days, we are rebuilding, we are rejuvenating, we have done a lot. Next step on the agenda is membership development in the right way and the development of regional influence. And so what we want to do is gather the leaders, the best and the brightest of the uh, providers in an area, bring you together um, in order to work on this issue, but others as well. And, um, and we'll, have a, uh, we'll have a business plan for that. In the meantime, if what you want to do is connect with peers within your uh, area, um, you may know who they are, do it, get together. If you want us to help facilitate that, call me and I will help facilitate that. It's lunchtime right next door. Let's go eat and give out some awards and thank you all very much.